If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Humans are unlike anything else in the universe. We're the only part of existence that can observe and reflect on being itself. We can also choose to destroy or repair our habitat. Or so Raymond Tallis argues in this deep dive interview into what it means to be human. In this episode, we will get some insights on how humans came to acquire this unique position, what it means for our relationship to nature, and what Parmenides had to do with all this. Raymond Tallis is a physician, a philosopher, a poet, and novelist, and according to Intelligent Life magazine, one of the world's greatest living polymaths. He is the author of such wide-ranging books, from The Enduring Significance of Parmenides, The Kingdom of Infinite Space, and Aping Mankind. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice, and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Raymond Tallis to Philosophy for Our Times. Can you tell me, can we start with this, what does it mean to be human when we don't believe in God? Very interesting question. And what does it mean to be human when we don't believe in God? It seems to me that as a humanist, we have two options if you set aside the idea that we are supernatural beings handcrafted by God with eternal souls. One is to embrace naturalism, to say, well, okay, if we're not supernatural, we must be just part of nature. That is to say, we're material objects, essentially, including our material brains that are wired into the material world. Well, I don't buy that because it actually, if you look at what's in front of your nose, it's clear that we're not that kind of entity. We're something rather different. So my feeling is that, no, we're not supernatural, but clearly we are extra natural. We are at some kind of distance from nature, the distance from which we can observe nature, and perhaps we can talk about that, and the distance from which we can manipulate and we can talk about that. So we are extra-natural beings. I mean, to say that we're extra-natural beings is really to acknowledge something that is blindingly obvious to everyone who isn't necessarily fanatically embracing materialism, feeling that's the only alternative to a religious or supernatural view of the world. So we're extra-natural in, in the sense that we can observe nature, we can describe it, we can even um, form theories about it, uh, we actually have the very concept of nature. And we're the only bit of nature, by the way, that puts nature in inverted commas. We're only a bit of the universe that 
embraces the universe and puts it in inverted commas. So in that sense, we are outside of nature. There's many consequences of that. And we can talk about how we got more and more outside of nature, perhaps in, in, in a second. And the other thing is we can genuinely act upon nature as if from the outside. What evidence is this? Well, I offer you the Anthropocene as the most spectacular evidence of our individual and collective agency. We have transformed nature, so much so the Anthropocene is regarded as the present phase of the universe. So that's for starters, that's the broad brush picture of ourselves as both observers of the world and from a standpoint of observation, able to manipulate it in directions that we have at least in part chosen. Do you think the Anthropocene stands as a stark and dangerous example of um, the risks of holding ourselves as exceptional to nature? It, how, what, do you, what do you think of that, that sort of line of argument? I think we're going to step back a bit because I know what's implicit in that Kate statement, the notion that we are somehow superior to everything else in nature and that this arrogance will end in tears. You know, hubris leads to nemesis and so on and so forth. Actually, my position isn't that. I believe that, yes, we're not part of nature, but I don't think we're sort of superior to it. For example, I don't think we're superior to chimps. I think we are just incommensurable with chimps, with trees, with ants, and so on and so forth. We are something quite different. And yes, there is the worry that it all seems to be ending in tears, that our collective and shared agency is leading to uh, consequences that all of us are increasingly aware of, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. But the very fact that we're aware of it means that we are at least able to take steps to head it off. Whether we do or don't is a matter of political commitment and all those other things. But I don't know any other species that's destroyed its own habitat and then set about repairing it, or better still, anticipated the destruction of its own habitat and, and then uh, aimed or, or set about preempting that. So, yes, there are dangers in our collective agency, our collective power. But again, our awareness of those dangers is a measure of our uniqueness. Again, I'm not saying our uniqueness makes us superior. I think we're just incommensurate uh, with other things. And it's probably worth exploring a little bit more of how did we get to be so different? To be honest, I have uh, um, published a trilogy on precisely that 10 or 15 years ago, uh, which looked at how we, how we got to be so different. Because I am a Darwinian, I'm not, I'm not a creationist, and so if one's going to produce an explanation of how we escaped biology to the extent that we do, now, we don't escape it com completely, of course. As a medic, I'd be the last person to believe that. But how did we get ourselves so distant from biology? And for that, we must have some kind of biological explanation. And there's all sorts of just-so stories that you can write. As I say, I've published a three-volume just-so story on that that gives priority to the hand, to the upright position, predominance of vision, and ultimately to language. But language is a parvenu. It's a recent uh, arrival perhaps, who knows, 40,000, 100,000, 300,000 years ago. But actually, uh, we were already very different, probably a million or more years ago. And I've talked a lot about early tools, hand axes and pebble choppers and so on. So the means by which we came to be so different was a bit of biological luck, and we built on that. But that process of our becoming different has accelerated enormously in the last, well, 100,000 or 300,000 years, and particularly in the last 1,000 years, and particularly in the last 100 years, especially in the last you know, 10 or 20 years. 
And one of the keys to our, as it were, becoming more and more distant from nature, more able to manipulate it, is um, our the ability for us to share our consciousness in an explicit way. Human consciousness is woven out of joined intentionality. And you can see that present very early on in the lives of human beings. I don't know whether you've got ever had any, had any babies yet, but those, those of us who've had babies know that long before language, at least a month or two before language emerges, the child is communicating by means of pointing. It's sharing its experiences. Pointing is a human universal and it's unique to humans, at least so-called declarative pointing is. And that ability to share our experiences, to acknowledge a common or shared world, to create a public sphere is central to the process by which we gradually become more and more distant from nature. We could talk a little bit about more about that if you want to do, but that's a sort of a bit of hand waving in the direction of how we became, have become ever more distant from the natural world. You talk in your work about logos, and I wondered if you could expand on that as well. Logos is an interesting term. It's a very loaded one. It sort of first came into human discourse, as far as I'm aware of, in the pre-Socratic philosophers, people like um, particularly Heraclitus. But it was embraced by Christianity through the mediation of Philo of Alexander, extraordinary writer who brought together the Hebraic, <coughs> excuse me, and the Greek traditions. But Logos is, I use it in my book of that title, as our capacity to make sense of the world as a world as a whole. Instead of making sense of a bit of this and a bit of that, like, uh, for example, um, a dog sniffing out some a source of a scent or whatever, we try and make sense of a world as a whole. And the journey that leads to world pictures from sensory experience is an extraordinary journey. It involves universals. It involves exploratory techniques in the search of principles. It involves looking for laws that go beyond merely patterns and so on and so forth. So Logos, in, in a sense, it's our sense of the intelligibility, coherence of the world, that things that are superficially different perhaps dance to a single tune. What do you think the pre-Socratics got right? Well, I have actually published a book on Parmenides, whom I admire enormously. And in a sense, he formatted the disc on which all subsequent philosophers have written their files. So he got that right. And you may be familiar with Parmenides, but some of the listeners may not be. He was the person who said basically that the universe is a single, unchanging, homogeneous entity. You think, well, that's rubbish. I mean, Aristotle himself said it was madness. And uh, Parmenides' argument was essentially that being is, but that which is not cannot be. So clearly that which is cannot come out of that which is not. So there can be no, as it were, emerging, nor indeed can there be any exit into something which is not. Being is, end of story. So there's no not being so there's no space in his argument for change, nor is there any space for the distance between beings. There's no space, if you like, for emptiness. And that's the reason why he felt uh, that the universe was a single, homogeneous, unchanging blob. Now, that's wrong. But like all great philosophy, it's interestingly wrong and it's profoundly wrong. And it's the profundity that one's willing to take on board, even if it leads to what Aristotle called lunacy, or what you can call it madness. And it seems to me what Parmenides brought to the party was to say, look, two things. 
I'm going to argue for my position. It's not the revelation from heaven. It's not what the gods have told me or the authorities. I'm going to argue for my position. And basically, I'm going to follow the argument wherever it takes, takes me. And if it takes me to a place of madness, well, well and good. It may well be the case that normal common sense understanding is wrong. And we need to look beyond common sense understanding. Now, it was wrong. It was interesting wrong. But actually, it's something that has proved, if you like, inspired the collection inqui collective inquiry ever since. And although empiricists would scorn at what Parmenides said, if you look at, say, the general theory of relativity, the notion of the spatio-temporal continuum, ultimately, there is centrally no change in the spatio-temporal continuum, except that which is imported into it by observers. And that's roughly what Parmenides was saying. He was saying, it's our, the illusion that comes from observation that makes us think there are changes. But he says, ignore your senses, look to the truth. So in many ways, Parmenides anticipated the general theory of relativity. So there's something to be said for Parmenides, the greatest of the pre-Socratic philosophers. Whitehead very famously said, we can look upon the history of Western philosophy as footnotes to Plato. Actually, we can look at Plato as a footnote to Parmenides. And I've stolen that idea from Elizabeth Anscombe. But essentially, I think we're all of us, as it were, either responding to or disagreeing with Parmenides. He, he is the man, basically, who collectively transformed intellectual consciousness. His extraordinary thoughts were an, an amazing self-encounter of humanity. You've had a medical career, philosophical career, you've written in poetry, fiction, theoretical works. How have you found that process of trying to find the right medium for your ideas and trying to express through the right vehicle, you know, what you want to say? Gosh, thank you for asking that question. Uh, the present book I'm writing, its final chapter is called The Battle of the Genre. And it just seems to me that from poetry, one can get certain things. The ability, as it were, to pick something out and to look at it and through this, this individual thing, try and reach something deeper. There's a famous dialogue of Goethe when someone says to him, why do you write occasional poetry? He says, no great poetry, well, don't pretend I write great poetry, but no great poetry is occasional poetry. If I write about a blackbird singing, I've cut to the heart of creation. But the truth is that poetry is still fastened inevitably to particulars. What does philosophy bring? Philosophy brings clearly very general inquiry. But the trouble is exsanguinated. When you're talking about being and knowing and so on, you've lost all the wonderful variety of things, the drunken variousness of things, as uh, Louis McNeese would say. So great, fantastic scope, philosophy. Thank you. But you've exsanguinated everything as a result of trying to see everything at once. So then there's fiction. And of course, what fiction brings to the party is the story or stories of individual human beings, possibly as examples of the human condition. So there is a narrative direction in fiction. But wouldn't it be wonderful to write something that brought together what poetry does, what fiction does, and what philosophy does? And by the way, what the essay does, which is something quite different again. And the answer is nobody's done it. People have tried um, hybrid genre, with varying degrees of success or strictly varying degrees of failure. And if you think about philosophical novels like The Unbearable Lightness of Being, it's quite light on philosophy, quite good on uh, fiction. But on the whole, you would think, well, philosophy 101 is okay to import in fiction. 
what we could do with a little bit uh, more profound philosophy. So I don't think anybody's cracked that, as a result of which, instead of doing something that brings these things together, you do things that actually express them or exemplify them in, in succession. So the two books I'm writing at the moment, well, the one I've just finished, it's coming out on free will, is Straight Philosophy. The one I'm writing at the moment called Prague 22, a, um, a book of tenuous connections, is a series of essays with poetic asides. It's got a bit of philosophy in because the underlying theme is that when you visit a city, which is the city of the title, you are an embodied subject who's removing your body around the streets and so on and so forth. But I've got a feeling that the uh, philosophy doesn't dissolve successfully uh, into the narrative. I mean, I've written up in the loft where they're turning to Peter and many manuscripts of books uh, that try to combine philosophy and fiction in particular. But it's a bit like trying to get the um, lumps to dissolve in the custard. They still remain obstinately, basically uh, separate. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.